Well, this morning, we continue our Advent series in the book of Psalms. And the word Advent, from a generic definition, can mean the arrival of a notable event, person, or thing. So we have the advent of the internet, the coming of a notable thing. But when we think about capital A Advent, it refers to the coming of Jesus. It is a notable event, his birth, a notable person, Jesus, God's son. And it is a notable thing because salvation has come. Last week, we looked at Psalm 2, and we learned about the true king. This morning, we're going to take a look at Psalm 24, and you can begin to turn there now. Psalm 24 will be our text, and Psalm 24 will tell us about the king of glory. You'll find this, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's a blue Bible on the floor by you, and you'll find Psalm 24 on page 458. In my Bible, right before the psalm, there's a subtitle here, of the, or a title of the psalm. It says, The King of Glory. That is indeed the theme of our message this morning. And you'll then see a psalm of David. So David wrote this psalm, and he wrote it for a specific purpose, which we'll get into in a minute. But hear now the word of the Lord. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it and upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God, of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth and the infallibility of your word. And Lord, we pray this morning that we would hear from your word. Father, may your spirit speak through me, and even more importantly, may your spirit speak to those who are gathered here. Open our ears to hear. Open our hearts and minds to hear your word and the truth of your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know about you, but this time of the year, I like to find a radio station that plays Christian. Christmas music all the time. 
sometime right after Thanksgiving and here in early December, I'm looking for that channel to save as my favorites and like to listen to those Christmas songs as I, as I drive along. I have Sirius XM radio, and I know that they have some specific stations. So I went to their website to find out what the options were and where to find them amongst all the channels that they offer. And I was surprised to find out there are 26 Christmas stations available through XM. And, and some of them are, you know, rather traditional. There's Holly. There's, of course, Jolly Christmas. There's Holiday Traditions. And my favorite, which is Christmas Spirit. That's the one I've saved and listened to. But there are also some uh, specific Christmas stations. There's Country Christmas, Acoustic Christmas, Cool Jazz Christmas, Rockin' Xmas, Holiday Pops, Holiday Soul, Holiday Chill Out, Holiday Instrumental, Real Jazz Holiday, and Jingle Jams, which is just kind of fun to say. There's also a brand new station this year called Sleep Christmas. Yes, Sleep Christmas. Now, I have not tuned into that one while I'm driving, for obvious reasons. Uh, the description is as follows. Drift off to meditative versions of classic Christmas melodies and stay well-rested through the holidays. Sleep Christmas. Well, with that many channels, I start to wonder... How many Christmas songs are there? How many Christmas songs have been recorded? And so I started my search once again, and to be honest, I could not find a definitive answer. There are hundreds of thousands, if not a million or more, Christmas songs. In fact, the number one recorded song in history is Silent Night. There are and have been recorded 137,315 versions by different singers in different languages and different styles recorded over the years. If you listened to Christmas music 24 hours a day, including the Sleep Channel apparently, seven days a week, it would take you nearly five years to listen through the entire Christmas catalog. So there are lots of choices for a favorite amongst all those songs. And I'm sure you have a favorite song or two that you always listen to. Well, I have a new one uh, this year by Phil Wickham called Behold. He, he recorded it a couple, uh, maybe a year ago, and I would encourage you to listen to it. Maybe not the first time while you're driving because you may not keep two hands on the wheel. It is a praiseworthy song Behold, the first verse of this song by Phil Wickham is very much aligned with Psalm 24 that we just read. The first verse says, Behold, the King has come, divinity incarnate, creator of the world, breathing our air. Behold, what light has come, and the dark cannot contain it. The Savior of the world is finally here. Oh, come, let us adore him, for he alone is worthy, Christ the Lord. His song describes Jesus as Lord, Creator, Savior, and King. 
And this morning, as we dig into our text in Psalm 24, which is also a song in three stanzas, we will see that Jesus is the Lord of all, that He is the Savior of the world, and that He is the King of glory. So you'll find that in your bulletin, this outline, the Lord of all in stanza one, verses one and two of Psalm 24, the Savior of the world in verses three through six, and the King of glory in verses seven through 10. Now, you may not think of Psalm 24 as a Christmas carol or a Christmas song, but George Handel used this psalm as inspiration for one of the choruses in his Messiah. The chorus, Lift Up Your Heads, is taken directly from Psalm 24. The chorus ends with the upper voices singing, Who is this King of glory? And the lower voices answering, The Lord of hosts, the Lord is the King of glory. Now, we don't know for sure when Psalm 24 was written, but we can take a pretty educated guess because this psalm is about God making His royal entrance into His holy city. Therefore, most scholars believe that this was written by David as a song for when the Ark of the Covenant entered Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant is described in the Old Testament, but also in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. Let me read that for you. It says, The Ark of the Covenant contained on all sides with gold, in which was the golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the law. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. The Ark of the Covenant was a symbol of God's presence, and the mercy seat a foreshadowing of Christ's work in dying on the cross and granting us mercy, His mercy. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was often taken along with the Israelites into battle. It's one of the reasons we'll read the Lord mighty in battle. In fact, when the Israelites crossed the Jordan River, they followed the Ark of the Covenant. They brought the Ark of the Covenant to the walls of Jericho, and they marched around the city of Jericho with the Ark for seven days before the walls came in, and God granted them victory. Yet when the Israelites stopped trusting God, the Ark was captured by the Philistines. You'll find the story in 1 Samuel chapters 4, 5, and 6. Uh, and I don't have this in my notes, and we're not going to turn there, but in, in 1 Samuel 5, this is a fascinating story. I encourage you to read it. But in 1 Samuel chapter 5, we see that the Philistines bring the Ark of the Covenant into their land, and they decide, let's put it in one of the temples to our idol. So they put it beside the idol. The next morning they come in and the idol has fallen face down before the Ark of the Covenant. Well, the temple priests say, well, I, don't know, I don't know how that happened. Let's stand it back up. They put it back up. The next morning they come in, 
the idol is once again fallen on the face before the Ark of the Covenant, and its head and its hands are severed. This is a beginning of a sign that maybe there's a problem having this Ark of the Covenant. We then read plagues and death follow the Ark as they move it from city to city. No, I don't want it. You take it. No, I don't want it. You take it. Finally, they say, after seven months, let's just send it back. And not just send it back, let's send gifts of gold to apologize to forever taking it when we beat the Israelites in battle. You see, that Ark of the Covenant then returns to Israel, but it's held in a family by the name of Abinadab. It sits there for about 20 years before David finally establishes his kingdom. Things calm down, and David says, let's bring that Ark. Let's bring the presence of the Lord back to Jerusalem. And this psalm celebrates that royal entrance of the presence of God. As we look here at Psalm 24, the psalm begins by praising God as the Lord, the King of all. He's the master of the universe. Verses 1 and 2 say, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. These verses assert God's absolute ownership of everything there is. The whole world belongs to Him. This includes the world itself and also everything in it. And so we have to ask ourselves, on what basis does God claim such absolute authority? On the basis of creation. The earth belongs to the Lord because He made it. He founded it. He established it. God is the creator, and as the creator, He is the Lord and King of all. God's power over creation gives Him the right to rule over everything that He has made. Matthew Henry writes, He made it, formed it, founded it, and fitted it for the use of man. The matter is His, for He made it out of nothing. The form is His, for He made it according to the eternal counsels and ideas of His own mind. He made it Himself. He made it for Himself, so that He is sole, entire, and absolute owner. Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper said, in the total expanse of human life, there is not a single square inch of which Christ, who alone is sovereign, does not declare, that is mine. So when people disagree about the origin of creation, they're not simply arguing about how the universe was made, but about who's in charge. If God is not our Creator, then He cannot be our King and Lord. Genesis 1.1 tells us, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In Genesis 1.26, 
Then God said, let us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, make man in our image, in after our likeness. Everything and every one in the entire universe was made by God. The fact that God is ruler of all is essential to our understanding of this psalm. You see, the psalm ends with God's, the presence of God entering Jerusalem. But you see, the God of Israel is not just the king of the Jews. He's the king of the whole earth. So the psalm begins with cosmic kingship. During the Advent season, we celebrate the entrance, the arrival of our glorious king. It's an event of universal significance before the whole wide world is his domain. Jesus is Lord of all. And he is also the Savior of the world. Let's look at verses 3 through 6. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Well, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. If God is the king of creation, then obviously we owe him allegiance. But then David raises an important question. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Meaning God's temple. In other words, who has permission to enter the royal court of the holy king? Well, the second stanza here explains who is worthy. It says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God his Father. James 4.8 helps us to understand this a little bit better. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. James is making an interesting connection to a New Testament reality connecting to an Old Testament ritual. You see, the Old Testament priests, before they could come to the altar to worship, had to cleanse, had to wash their hands and feet in the bronze basin. Exodus tells us that they shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. But the truth of the matter is we cannot cleanse ourselves. Only God, through the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Christ shed His blood on the cross, providing the necessary sacrifice for our sins so that we could receive God's forgiveness and His complete cleansing. We can ascend the hill because of 
the blood of Jesus. And let's use Scripture to confirm this. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22 describes it very well this way. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, we can ascend the hill. What's the next phrase? By the blood of Christ, by the new and living way that Jesus opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, Jesus is our high priest. He is the Savior of the world. And He is the King of glory. The Psalm's climax comes in the final stanza. David asserts God's rule over creation. He's explained who has the right to enter His royal presence. Now the King comes in His glory. Open the gates, enter the king of glory. Let's read it in verses 7 through 10 of this psalm. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. You see, this last stanza in Psalm 24 is in the form of a dialogue. It, it might have been something like this. The ark is coming up the hill to Jerusalem, to the temple. And the choir sang outside the gates calling on behalf of the triumphant King, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up. O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. But before the gates could be opened, the gatekeeper asked the question, Who is this King of glory? And the heralds reply, This, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. And the choir repeats their summons, Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And as the giant gates begin to swing open, the question is repeated for emphasis. And because of the beauty, the pure beauty of the answer, which bears repeating, who is the King of glory? And together they sang, the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. The main point of Psalm 24 is that the Lord is the Lord of all creation. He is the Savior of the world. He is the King of glory. This was revealed when the ark entered Jerusalem in a very interesting way. It parallels Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Let's take a look at that passage. If you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. This is a familiar passage to you. It describes Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday. Matthew 21, beginning in verse 1, says, Now 
when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them on, and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem through the gate, the whole city was stirring up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus of Nazareth. Now, you want to know something really interesting? Every day in the temple, the priests have a prayer service. And following that prayer service, they sing a psalm. On Sunday, they have the first day of the week, they have a prayer service and they sing a specific psalm. On Tuesday, they sing a specific psalm. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And then they repeat so that on the first day of every week, of every year, they sing a psalm. That psalm is Psalm 24. Psalm 24. So on the first day of the week, when Jesus is triumphantly entering Jerusalem, the priests are in the temple singing Psalm 24. So the people in the streets are saying, who is this king? And their answer is Jesus. And the priests are singing, who is this king? The Lord Almighty. And in a way that neither could understand at the time, they were both right. Because the king of glory, Jesus, was entering. And as great as that celebration was, there's even a more triumphal entry Jesus' glorious ascension to heaven. And the Bible doesn't offer us a description, a full description of what that looked like, what that royal entrance looked like, but it gives us some glimpses. Hebrews 1, 3 says, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And he upholds the universe by the power of his word. You see, he is the Lord of all. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You see, Jesus is the Savior of the world who purifies our sins. Ephesians 1, 19 through 21 says, According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead 
and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. You see, Jesus is the name above all names. He is the King of glory. Can you imagine what it was like when Jesus, God's Son, finished His work of salvation on that cross and entered the glories of heaven where He was welcomed back in the embrace of His Father? In the words of one commentator, these verses picture the scene when after spoiling the powers of darkness, after abolishing death itself, the resurrected Jesus, the Lord, returns to heaven in triumph. And as he approaches the heavenly portals, the celestial heralds cry out, lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, ye everlasting doors, for the King of glory shall come in. And the angelic watchers within ask, who is this king of glory? And the answer, the Lord, strong and mighty. There's one final place Jesus wants to make his royal entrance. And that is in your heart. It's important to know that not everyone who sings God's praises receives him as king. Palm Sunday is a great example of that. The very people who welcomed him as king on Sunday, later that week, called for his crucifixion. It's not enough to simply say that Jesus is the king of glory. You have to enthrone him as the king of your heart. Who is this king of glory? Let me use a very fa- words from a very famous sermon by Shadrach, Meshach, Lockridge. S.M. Lockridge famously talked about his king. He says, the Bible says, my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. That's my king. Do you know him? Do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He is enduringly strong. He is entirely sincere. He is eternally steadfast. He is immortally graceful. He is imperially powerful. He is impartially merciful. That's my king. Do you know him? He is the greatest phenomenon that ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's the sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him. He supplies strength 
for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He is the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom, the doorway of deliverance, the pathway of peace, the roadway of righteousness, the highway of holiness, the gateway to glory. I wonder, do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off of your hands. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him. They found they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle, and the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. Do you know him? Do you know him? Is he your Lord? Is he your Savior? Is he your king? For those of you who have not submitted yourselves to the Lord Jesus as Savior and King, will you do so today? Rob, Ben, Jonathan, or I would love to come alongside you and help you understand God's gift of salvation. It's the greatest gift ever, ever given. God the Father gave His perfect Son so that you might have life, an abundant life. Open your heart. Let the King come in. And for those of you who do know Jesus as Lord and Savior, are you yielding to Him as King of your life? Are you yielding to His authority and offering Him the glory that He deserves? Oh, come, let us adore Him. He alone is worthy. Christ, the King of glory. Let's pray. Father, we're just so humbled, humbled to be in your presence, humbled by the King of glory. Thank you, Father, for the gift of Jesus. Thank you for this season where we are reminded of that wonderful, amazing, immaculate gift. Jesus, come to earth to cleanse us so that we might ascend the holy hill, that we might come to your presence, Lord, and spend eternity with you in heaven. Father, move us to yield to you. Yield us to give you glory that you deserve. We pray this in the holy name of Jesus. Amen.